Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Evidence shows that two-thirds of individuals living with Alzheimer's disease are women and that changes in the brain occur two decades before Alzheimer's disease symptoms develop. In today's episode, we're diving into the risk factors that most impact women diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and the work being done to prevent onset. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Jessica Caldwell join me for today's conversation. Dr. Caldwell is a neuropsychologist and director of the Women's Alzheimer Movement Prevention Center at Cleveland Clinic, part of Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute's Lou Rovo Center for Brain Health in Las Vegas. Jessica, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you for having me. So, Jessica, uh, just as an introduction, uh, why don't you just tell us, tell our audience uh, who you are, how you got to where you are. I'm a neuropsychologist, and I work here in Las Vegas. The way that I got here is I'm a clinical psychologist who always specialized in sex differences in the brain, but I started out looking at adolescence. Then over the course of my clinical training, I got interested in neuropsychology and memory problems. When I came to Las Vegas was the first time seven years ago that I had the opportunity to really bridge my research and clinical interests. And now I focus on sex differences in Alzheimer's disease. So let's start broad. Uh, What risks impact men and women when it comes to Alzheimer's disease? Recent research shows that we know a broad array of risks impact whether or not men and women will get Alzheimer's disease. Some of these things are equivalent across sexes. For example, age is the number one risk factor for getting Alzheimer's disease. Just aging will increase our risk no matter if we're a man or a woman. But on the other hand, there are some risks that we have that impact women to a greater degree. So for example, our genetics may actually work against women in some ways. Women have a copy of the ApoE4 allele, which is the most common risk gene for late onset Alzheimer's. It increases a woman's risk greater than it would a man's risk. And there are also risk factors that while they might impact a man and a woman similarly, they're just more common in women. And one of those would be physical activity. If you look across men and women on average, women are just less physically active, and that might put us at greater risk. So do all women have one copy of ApoE4? No. So with the ApoE4 gene, we can have a a variety of combinations. We each have two alleles, and each of those can be a two, a three, or a four. The four allele has been shown to increase risk for Alzheimer's disease, and having two copies increases risk more than having one copy. About a week ago, I was in California with a a friend of mine who had trained with many years ago, and I think he told me he was doing the 23andMe testing, had it done. I don't know if his kids ordered it for him, Uh, but he said his ApoE4 came back positive and he wished he didn't know it. Are you seeing more of that, people coming to see you just because, you know, they do the testing and it's positive? And do you see it more in women than men or not necessarily? 
not necessarily more in women than men, but I do find that it's it's somewhat common for women to come to my prevention center because they've taken an, an at-home genetic test and found out that they had a risk gene like ApoE4 for Alzheimer's disease. On the other hand, many women know that they have a risk for Alzheimer's disease because they have a family history. I think it really varies uh, by person, whether or not people want to know about their genetics. For some people, it can be very motivating in terms of changing their behavior. And for other people, it feels scary and not quite as helpful for making those behavior changes. What are the factors that affect women independent of men? The big factor that impacts women and really doesn't impact men so much is menopause. So women at menopause lose estrogen fairly rapidly compared to andropause in men, which is losing testosterone, which happens much more slowly and gradually and to less extent than estrogen loss. And with estrogen, we know that estrogen supports memory. It's very active in the brain. It isn't just a hormone related to our reproductive cycles. And so as women go through menopause, our brains actually have to readjust to not having estrogen at the levels that have been there since we've been through puberty. And for some women, and research is trying to figure out exactly which women, it appears that this estrogen loss is really a vulnerability factor for later developing dementia and Alzheimer's. So I'm a neuro-oncologist, and you know, one of the tumors that we see are meningiomas, and meningiomas can be linked with estrogen. They can have estrogen receptors. So we're always very careful about telling women about taking estrogen supplements. And of course, with breast cancer, heart disease, those types of things. Do you see women uh, asking if they can take estrogen? Yes. So one of the biggest hot topics in research for sex differences in Alzheimer's is actually hormone replacement right now. And as you are pointing out, this is an area that's had, you know, an unfortunate and storied history, starting with the Women's Health Health Initiative studies, where um, because estrogen is great for memory, folks thought it would be also great for preventing or reversing dementia. And unfortunately, it wasn't. It women who started taking estrogen and hormone replacement years after menopause had really unfortunate outcomes where dementia risk increased, cardiovascular disease risk increased. Um, and so that really changed the story about who should be taking hormone replacement. At this point, um, in addition to knowing that women, it's not really beneficial and it could be damaging to start HRT after menopause is over, the research does suggest that women who have very early menopause, so before age 45, might actually have some brain benefit from using hormone replacement around the time of that early menopause, whether it was natural or um, due to surgery, for example. But the big area that is still an unknown is really around the time of menopause. It's called at this point the window of opportunity. And the hope is that there are some women, and we have to, again, figure out who they are. Is it people with particular genetics or lifestyles, but that some women may benefit from taking HRT in terms of brain health. At the same time, there isn't a simple answer because as you pointed out, there are so many other things that estrogen does in the body beyond the brain, beyond reproduction, and the role in cardiovascular disease and certain types of cancers, of course, um, has to be a priority in discussing those kind of treatments. 
I know this is about women and Alzheimer's, but I'm a man of a particular age, as I like to say, and uh, testosterone decreases in us. Does the decrease in testosterone increase risk for men? So decreasing testosterone risk is, you know, it's one of those things that is, has been a little bit less of my focus of research, but what I can say is that there's a role for testosterone in women and it might be protective. And so knowing that it's also an area where we should be looking and we should find out, um, it's definitely not to the same degree as the hormonal changes in women. And that may just be because of the gradual nature versus the more rapid changes in estrogen. Now, uh, we may not have data on this, uh, but women that go on anti-estrogen drugs, tamoxifen, you know, they have sometimes low-level breast cancer when they're young and will be on it for five years. Any data to suggest that they have increased cognitive problems later in life or are they a little more at risk or not enough data to know? I think that there is active research in this area. I don't know if there's enough data to be definitive about long-term effects, but there are some studies that are suggesting that aromatase inhibitors do impact memory in the short term for women, and some women may not recover as well. Again, I think this is an area where we have to figure out who is this most disadvantageous for? Is it a particular age, a particular sort of genetic vulnerability, and so on? Yeah, as you can imagine, it gets pretty complicated. There's an entity I'm sure you're well familiar with called Chemobrain. And oftentimes, you know, breast cancer patients are on other drugs as well. And then to di try to differentiate one from the other could be quite difficult. So moving on, what about presentation of the disease? Do women present with Alzheimer's different than men? In terms of the actual symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, men and women both present with a common set of symptoms, and they tend to be forgetting of conversations, of names, and also difficulty coming up with words in conversation. That said, every individual may look a bit different, but there's not a different set of cognitive symptoms that women present with versus men. It's more about the timing. Research shows that women do have what we refer to as a verbal memory reserve or advantage. So on average, women have a better verbal memory than men. Unfortunately, we in the clinic oftentimes rely on memory tests, especially verbal memory tests, to diagnose Alzheimer's disease or pick it up early. So what this means is that oftentimes women may be diagnosed later than men. So men may be diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment or MCI um, at, at an age when a woman may have similar levels of disease pathology in her brain, but just less memory symptoms. So women are showing the memory symptoms a bit later. I, again, as being a man of a certain age, I know a lot of women of a certain age, and, you know, I do hear this quite a bit. Oh, my memory's not as good. It's menopause. You know, that's why I'm having the problem. So I suspect that also contributes to the underdiagnosed, right? People don't go to be seen. Absolutely. So I think that there are a number of issues surrounding menopause that really could impact women's insight into the fact that something's changing or their willingness to just talk about it and ask questions, there's really still a stigma about talking about menopause. And part of that stigma resulted in most women not knowing that menopause is not just about 
changes in your reproduction and kind of ending of that fertility time. It really means that there could be changes in your sleep. There could be changes in your mood. You might get anxious or depressed, and you also might have memory problems. We know that we can actually measure in many women a dip in memory around the time of menopause. And that dip is actually accompanied by a similar change or recalibration in brain activity, as well as in some cases in brain structure. So the thickness of our cortex even can show a change. Um, so it's true that I think, you know, women, if they don't know about these things, it's really hard to to understand whether or not a concern you have about your memory, it might pass or if you should take it seriously and really follow up more significantly on it. So Jessica, you've done a great job uh, outlining some of the problems, but let's move to prevention and the exciting things that you guys are doing in, in Vegas. So the Women's Alzheimer's Movement Prevention Center, tell us how it started, why it started, what you're doing, what your role is. The Women's Alzheimer's Movement Prevention Center at Cleveland Clinic, we started because at that point in 2018, we were doing research on sex differences in Alzheimer's disease. And we knew that there were these issues that we've been discussing, but Maria Shriver, who had been one supporting a lot of my research, came to Larry Ruvo, our uh, philanthropic benefactor here in Las Vegas, as well as to Dr. Cummings and Dr. Sabah and said, can we do more than just research? Can we actually start putting some of this research knowledge into clinical practice? And I was thrilled to be able to help with that process. I designed with some mentorship of these folks I'm mentioning the, the clinic model, and I've been directing the clinic since 2020 in June. And it really is a place where women can come have their risks for Alzheimer's disease assessed, and then have their risks directed toward behavior change. So I work with women to prioritize how to change their lives and their behaviors in ways that reduce the risks of Alzheimer's that they can control, although there might be ones they can't, like their family history and their genetics. So I'm sure there's a lower cutoff and there's a higher cutoff of age. Who's your ideal age woman for this? I mean, we mentioned at the start, it could be 20 years till things show up. So, uh, and do they have to have a known risk factor to get into the study? To be a participant in our clinic, and really we are a clinic first, although we do have research embedded, uh, to be eligible, we ask that women have either a family history of Alzheimer's disease or a known genetic risk, such as through a home test that they took or a test at their doctor's office. And we also have a restricted age range of about age 30 to 60. The reason for that is because this is around the time where we can really work on primary prevention of Alzheimer's disease. You know, changes in the brain began about 20 years, up to 20 years before symptoms start, and symptoms most commonly start around age 75. So we are looking for women who are either before or right around that time when we would expect pathology to start so that we can really make some changes and hopefully preventing the pathology as well as the symptoms. Well, I don't know if it's good news or bad news, but I'm over your age 60 cutoff, so uh, and the wrong sex, of course. But I would like to believe that there's a lot of interest and your phone is ringing off the hook. Uh, how many people can you enroll in this? Is this unlimited or you have a set number of people? You've got the number of people. How long are you going to follow them? 
So the first day we opened, we actually shut down the phone lines here in Las Vegas and, and shut down the website because we had so many women calling in wanting to be a part of the clinic. Um, we are a one day a week clinic supported almost entirely by philanthropy. And so what this means is that we have a wait list. Right now, we are going to be continuing this clinic on into the future. We have support for the next few years. And then really what the limit is, is the wait list. But the best way to get on the list is to go to our website and get it on our appointment list now. So it sounds like we need to encourage a little more philanthropy to increase the N. I agree. Until insurance reimburses prevention, we really are so indebted and, and reliant upon philanthropy. Of course, we'd have to duplicate you probably as well. This is true. As it goes through. What types of preventions are we looking at for women? You know, give us some examples of, of someone that might have something that you would recommend a prevention for. So in my clinic, we focus on two categories of behavior change. One is we're working directly on what are termed modifiable risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. This comes from work published in The Lancet over the past five or six years that shows right now we think up to 40% of current cases might have been preventable if we had known about changing behavior you know, 20 years ago. And things on that list include medical conditions like high blood pressure and diabetes. So if women come in at risk for those things due to a family history, we talk about really um, watching to avoid those things, taking more care even than other women on diet and exercise. The list of modifiable risks also includes things like getting enough physical activity. So while we work with every woman on physical activity, there are some women who really need to, to get moving to a higher degree. And it also includes things like reducing alcohol intake. So there's a particular level of alcohol above which you're actually increasing your risk for Alzheimer's disease. So if a woman comes in in that range, then we would work together on, on how to get that reduced. In addition to those modifiable risks, of which there are 12, we also know a lot about different behaviors that support brain health that aren't on that list. So just a couple of examples that are very common in the cl clinic, one would be sleep. So we know that sleep is important for memory consolidation. We clear amyloid out of the brain during sleep, and that's that protein that builds up in Alzheimer's. And menopause can disrupt sleep. So very frequently, we're working with women in the clinic to change their routines around sleep, or if, if it's a more chronic sleep problem, to work with a therapist to really uh, routinize that sleep and, and change some of those dysregulations. Another thing that's not on that modifiable risk that's so important for our overall health is, of course, our nutrition. So women may come in with great, great diets, or they may come in with a lot of processed food. And so we'll work individually with each woman to try to change things in a way that's sustainable over time. So I know in the, the brain tumor area for exercise uh, for high-grade tumors, there's been some data to support that five days a week. Uh, 30 minutes at a time at a brisk walk pace or, or more, uh, patients with some high-grade tumors live twice as long. Do you have any specifics with exercise? Is it aerobic, anaerobic? Uh, is there a timeline? Is there a minimum amount that they need to do? 
with women, we try to really meet them where they are. So there's a couple of different things we talk about. One is similar to what you just mentioned, which is the CDC and the World Health Organization for brain health recommend about 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise. And so some women might not be exercising at all, and we might be working towards that goal. On the other hand, research right now is looking into what kinds of exercise best support brain function. And one of the types of exercise that has a lot of accumulated evidence behind it is high intensity interval training. So for younger women, women in that 30 to 60 range, we talk a lot about incorporating intervals and high intensity intervals into their routine to potentially best maximize brain derived neurotrophic factor release, both in the short term and the long term. Very interesting. The I guess I'm going to have to start doing some interval training. Just in case, just in case. So something I'm curious about, you know, um, I hear a lot of women tell me through menopause, their cholesterol goes up. Do you guys aggressively treat cholesterol? This is something that isn't as much in my area of expertise. So I should say within the clinic, I do work with a, a medical provider as well. So in the beginning, we work with a family medicine doctor, and now we're working with a physician assistant to do more of the medical side of things. And our clinic, we're not, we don't prescribe but what we do if someone came in with cholesterol issues um, is really aggressively recommend through diet and exercise that they continue to mm-hmm. attempt to reduce that. But in terms of any prescribing, that's not something that we would do. And I always hate to ask this question, but compliance uh, are very motivated patients. They're going to do what you tell them to do or tell me about the population. We have a population or group of women that's really extraordinary. These are folks who are highly motivated to change their health, to reduce their risk. And I think that that motivation comes from having watched a parent or a grandparent or multiple relatives decline with Alzheimer's. These are folks coming in who, you know, they they ask for what to do and then they do what you recommend. I think that in the first two years of us running this clinic, we certainly have learned some lessons. We've changed our model a bit to give women a little bit more exposure to our providers over the course of a year so that they have more chances to kind of get that motivational boost and ask questions. But I would say on the whole, these women are just honestly extraordinary with their adherence. So uh, franchising, push it out to the rest of the country. Any thoughts about that or sort of see how you do over the first few years? I would love to bring prevention education and prevention practice to more places in the country, more places in Cleveland Clinic. I think that, as I said before, there are some limitations related to not being reimbursed by insurance. So it creates a cost around this type of service. But that, in my mind, really means that I need to be creative. I need to work with my partners to really make sure that we're thinking of different ways to bring prevention out there. Because I think that Although prevention and long-term outcomes, we will have to wait to get those numbers. We have enough data now to bring information on behavior change that women can start using to hopefully reduce their risks 20 years from now. And I think that, you know, it's part of my passion and kind of my, my ethical kind of bent to really think that this is something important to do now. Excellent. Any uh, new research in the field going on that uh, you want to share with us? 
Yes. So there are a few things that are going on right now that are very exciting. And one of them I alluded to a bit before, but hormone replacement therapy is a a very hot topic. And there have been active investigations, um, some just starting by Dr. Roberta Brinton, who is at Arizona. And these studies are so exciting to me because the question is, who should take hormone replacement? And can we build a better hormone replacement? And I think that this is the approach that will be needed if we really truly want to take advantage of some of these body systems that we know about, but have risks as well as benefits. And if we can really use that precision medicine, personalized medicine approach to target treatments toward the right people. Jessica, do you have any closing remarks that you'd like to share with our audience uh, today before we end? I think it's it's important to just know that there there's hope when it comes to Alzheimer's disease. There are things that women and everyone can do to start reducing risks and that women in particular might be hesitant or, or nervous to bring these topics up with their doctors and just having that that conversation. If you have an opportunity, it can be really powerful for patients and really life changing. Well, Jessica, it sounds like you're doing some really great work out there. If you open up a post-menopause study, then I'll be right out there to join it with you. But we'd really like to thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.